All right, have a seat, and we're going to get going. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be wrapping up this chapter of the book of Matthew as we're walking our way through this book of the Bible. Um, I'm also here to address for you a question that I know many of you have been asking for a long time, and I finally just want to address the, um, the elephant in the room, undoubtedly why you came this morning. I'm going to tell us, teach us how to catch a monkey. Okay. I know it's been the burning question in your soul, uh, one of those unanswerable ones, and I'm, I'm here to help you with that. Now, the first thing you're going to need is a jar. Now, you're going to need a jar that's small enough. Uh, you, need, you need it to be big enough for the monkey to get his hand into. Now, that's the first part. And then you need to put something in it that a monkey would desire. It's a cliche, but a banana. If you know of something else your monkey wants, then go that route. But once it finds that banana, you also need it to be a small enough opening that once it grabs the banana... And it's in fist form, fingers tightly wound around that banana. It cannot get its hand back out of that jar. And when you've done that, um, you yourself have caught a monkey, right? Now, I'd also say you could use a coconut. Uh, If you have coconuts lying around your house and you have a monkey infestation problem, you've actually probably got bigger issues in your life right now. Uh, But, you know, just kind of trying to help you through this. Um, This is uh, this little helpful tutorial um, is to also link us to our cautionary tale um, today about our rich young ruler. Uh, In Matthew 19, we hear this story about the rich young ruler. Or if you're a 90s kid, um, I'm going to call him Richie Rich today uh, from the uh, the uh, the movie that got a high review from Rotten Tomatoes, I'm sure, there weren't a lot of rich people in this guy's day. So when Richie Rich is walking around Judea, um, he would have stood out as, as one of the only rich men at the time. It'd be like if Bill Gates was walking around Soldatna today, we would notice him, right? He would stand out. And so he, this guy undoubtedly would be a local celebrity. He would be somebody everybody wanted to be friends with, everybody sidling up to him, being nice to him, hoping they could get a piece of his pie. Maybe he would allow them to work for him or whatever it might be. But Richie Rich, um, sort of like our monkey today, where his hand was caught in a jar. He had a tight grip on his possessions, and, and his money. And until he was willing and, and ready to let go of those possessions, he, we're going to find that he wasn't free to follow Jesus. We're going to see that Richie Rich found himself trapped. And Jesus is going to say, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, then you must be willing to let two things go and receive those two things from me. So if you're following in your notes, the first point, let go of your own righteousness and riches. And for those of you, I am skipping a blank today. So if you've got that first quote about eternal life, you can fill in a life approved by God and access to the kingdom. Approved and access are your two words. Because I know some of you are going to go, you didn't get that blank. I know, I know, chill out. All right, so verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him, being Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, if you were with us last week, when the Pharisees came to Jesus, they were trying to trap him, trick him with his, their questions. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think the rich young ruler is being earnest and honest in his question here. And it's the most important question you could ever ask. And we see him here as he, he refers to Jesus as teacher. This was a sign of respect. In fact, in Mark, where it's the same story, the, it says the man ran up to him and knelt before him. He was honoring Jesus, coming honestly, asking this question. But as we're going to see in Jesus' responses, there are some critical errors that he made as he was misguided in the questions that he was asking. And we see this in Jesus' first response. Look with me in verse 17. Jesus said, why do you ask me 
about what is good? Why do you ask me about what is good? Now, we got to step back and say, what is what does it mean to be good? What, what is, when we say something is good, have you ever thought about that? Like, what exactly does that mean? And I've, I've asked a lot of people over the years why they think they're getting into heaven. Um, and, and often you'll hear something along the lines of, well, I know God is a loving God, and, and I think I'm a generally a good person. But then we would follow up and say, says who? And what is good? And how do we, how do we define, I mean, do we just take a vote as a society? Like we're all in hands of, all, 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 everyone who thinks that sharing cookies should be a good thing, raise your hand, right? And we'll just kind of vote on it democratically. Or, or maybe today we see in our culture that you kind of get to define your own goodness, right? Well, whatever is good for you, it's good for you. And what's good for me is good for me. But think, think about it this way. If I'm in an art class, and look at my, man, that is, that's pretty good, right? That's a, looks like a pig that was a little too close to a nuclear power plant or something. Um, I don't turn to my buddy and go, hey, buddy, do you think this is good? And he's going, dude, that's good, right? It's better than mine. How do I determine, if I'm in art class, if I want to know if my artwork is good or not, it's up to the teacher and their standards, what they've told me to do, and they're the ones that will decide if it's good. And so Jesus here is saying, Richie Rich, you take your artwork to God. He is the only one qualified to say if this is good or not. He says this in the next part of verse 17. Why do you ask me what's good? There is only one who is good. The implication there clearly, God is the only one who's good. He's the standard. He's the definition of what is good. So when we ask what is good, what we should really be asking is, is it consistent with who God is? Is it like him? That's what's good or what's not good. So the next logical question would be, how do we know what God is like? What is his standard for what is good? Well, that's the last part of verse 17. Jesus says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. The commandments. This is God's law, right? The, God, the law that he gave through Moses to the people of Israel. Now, now, this was not just some random set of rules that he chose or some arbitrary, like, ah, eh, murder, that sounds bad, don't do that. Yeah, and then, you know, maybe. What, what the law reveals to us is God's character. It's who God is. He says, keep these and you will be like God and share in his eternal quality kind of life. You and I were created in the image of God. And therefore, the law shows us what we ought to be like, too. How to be good, how to be like God. And so he unpacks this for the rich young ruler. He says in verse 18, uh, when, when the guy asks him which ones, Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Jesus is showing here is he says, God's a God of love. And this is reflected in these commandments. God is a God who gives life. He doesn't take it like a murderer. God is a faithful God. He does not have an adulterous heart. God is a God of truth. He doesn't lie. And on it goes. Be like God. These commandments reflect that. But shockingly uh, and brazenly, I, I felt like in verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I kept. What do I still lack? He goes, I nailed those ones. Yep. What else you got, Jesus? Now, Jesus just said, only God is good. Which means, if only God is good, then everybody else is? Uh, good. You guys caught on faster than the first service crew. I think they were still tired from all the sunshine yesterday. Um, everybody else is bad. But listen, there are two ways. There are two different ways that we can be bad. Uh, the, the first way, we can be bad the bad way, right? Like our boy Gru here. 
Now, this would be somebody who's in open rebellion against God, who says, I know what you want me to do, and I'm just not going to do it. I'm going my own way, right? And we have extreme examples of serial killers or a drug lord, or or in Jesus' day, we saw the people who were just living in open sin and often referred to as the prostitutes and the tax collectors. But then we also see that there is another way to be bad. It's being bad the good way, right? Good grew. And this guy is, and this is probably more of us, where it's the rule follower. It's the one who, on the surface, their life looks pretty good. So this could be the, the pastor. This could be soccer mom Sally. This might be your kid's fourth grade teacher. This is people who vote, who go to church, who pay their taxes, who don't litter, who come to complete stops, just like I always do. <laughs> that's another. That's another. Outwardly, on the surface, we look pretty good. Paul says this of himself in Philippians chapter 3. He says, as to righteousness under the law, nailed it. Blameless. I look pretty good. Now, Richie Rich says, my life, it looks good. I'm a rule-following, upstanding citizen, keeper of the law. And he's probably right. He probably doesn't murder. He doesn't lie. He doesn't steal. My artwork looks much better than my classmates. But Jesus wants to show Richie Rich and he wants to show, man, on the outside, your life looks pretty good and shiny, like a clean apple, but on the inside is dead and rotting. And he wants to expose the motives. He wants to show something underneath the surface in this man's life. And so he moves to the heart of the issue, as he always does. And notice in verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack. Do you hear this in his voice? Deep down, he knows something is missing. He knows that there's still something out there to have the kind of life that satisfies. And to which Jesus replies in verse 21, he said, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Come follow me. Now, if you notice, the laws that Jesus pointed to earlier, these were all what we would call horizontal laws. Oh, yeah, excuse me. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We know, of course, he does not choose to follow Jesus. Now, when you look at these, um, these rules that he gave earlier from the commands, they, these were all what we would call horizontal commands. So you think about this, this means man to man, right? Person to person. So don't murder another person. Don't lie to another person. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor, which is the summation of the, remember, it's the second greatest commandment that Jesus gives when he says, uh, when he's asked what the two greatest ones are. But Jesus says here to Richie Rich, you've done a lot of good deeds. Your life horizontally, it looks pretty presentable. But what he wants to show him now is you're all jacked up vertically because you have violated the very first commandment, which says what? You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. He says, you are not worshiping God as your God. You are worshiping money as your God. If that's what you're putting your trust in, your possessions, not your God. See, Jesus is not just calling us to outward morality, just to a religious behavior that looks better than some of the rest of the world. He's inviting us into what God has always wanted from us, all, what he created us for in the first place, and that's a relationship with himself. See, when we ask the question, what is good, it's not just moral behavior. And so bad is just committing a moral foul. See, non-Christians can live pretty moral lives. It can be people who don't murder and don't steal and, and, and are nice to their parents. 
but they can't worship God. They, they won't worship God. They can't and won't have a relationship with him. And that's at the heart of, of what it means to be good. I love John Piper's definition of sin. It's so helpful to me. He says, sin is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart. Remember, Jesus is getting to the heart issues here. It comes from a heart that does not treasure God above all other things. Sin is anything that does not treasure God above all other things. So when he kind of unpacks this, what would this look like in our lives to treasure him above all things? It means that the sin is when the glory of God is not honored. Sin is, is when the holiness of God is not reverenced the way it should be. When the greatness of God is not admired. When the power of God is not praised. When the truth of God is not sought. When the wisdom of God is not esteemed. When the beauty of God is not treasured, the goodness of God is not savored, the faithfulness of God is not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. We all fall short of that. None of us are good. This is not just did you steal a cookie or not. This is the greatest commandment that Jesus said. This is, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength? And that's no one. This isn't, now that when Jesus said, keep these commandments and you'll live, remember the proper use of the law. Jesus isn't saying, I want you to try to keep the law so that you'll be saved. He's using the law in its proper use. It's a mirror to show the man his need to be saved. It's Jesus saying, you have to let go of your own ability to be good because no one is good except for my God. And then he goes on in verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a, a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there has been a popular theory that this was a reference, this eye of the needle through, uh, the, the camel through the eye of the needle, that there was actually a gate in Jerusalem called Needle's Eye, and, and that for the camel to get through this gate, it was one of the smaller doors, the smaller gates, and with a big pack on his back, he'd have to take off the pack to squeeze through the door. So to say that you'd have to get rid of your possession to be able to get through. Unfortunately, that analogy misses the point. If I was to say, man, it's like getting a Subaru into a matchbox, am I right? And you guys are like, yeah, I totally get it. Uh, so, th th well, but did you know that there was actually a garage called the matchbox and you just have to unload your luggage rack and then you can drive into the matchbox. But you would see here, precise point that Jesus is trying to make is this is unthinkable. Because look at the reaction. The disciples get it. They go, they're greatly astonished, saying, well, then who can be saved? And then Jesus responds. He looks at them and said, with man, this is impossible. Not just difficult, impossible. You can't save yourself. You can't be good. You can't worship God with all your heart. But with God, all things are possible. What you can't do, what is impossible for you to do, God is doing, and in fact, he's doing it through me. Now, why does Jesus say here that it's particular, particularly hard to say the word particularly and for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven? 
Well, for 20 years, um, I had the hips of a 94-year-old man. I don't know why 94 exactly, but um, now it got to the point where I couldn't walk for more than 10 or 20 minutes without extreme pain. And it was rough. And I cried out to God often, like, God, heal me. I need your help. I need your strength. I, I need your direction. I, I, I ran, out, ran out of options looking at doctors and, and, and what I could do for my hips. And I'll tell you, it was a hard time, but it was also a sweet time of reliance on my God. In our weakness, he is strong. So um, I was led to some doctors, and a doctor, Jimmy Chow, in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, got two new hips, and, and, and am good to go. Just this last Tuesday, Jill and I hiked Lost Lake, went 15 miles, the longest hike I've ever hiked in my life. And it was this amazing thing, thankful to God for giving me these new hips and to be able to enjoy his creation. However, this is what I've also seen with these new hips and, and, the, and the lack of that pain. I also feel less of that urgent need for God that I did when I was in that pain. And it's easy to have this attitude of, thanks for the new hips, God. I got it from here. And we can see the same thing with wealth. One of the reasons that wealth can be so dangerous is because it gives us the illusion of self-sufficiency. You know, Jill and I getting married with two full incomes right now um, man, it's, it's easier day to day to not feel that need. Uh, we can put into savings, we can give more generously, um, and, but it's easy to start having the attitude of, okay, we got this. I remember being in college, and there's times when I literally had like $10 in my account, and I'm like, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to pay tuition or whatever it was. Now, yeah, you may hear rich person, and you go, well, that's not me. Like, most of us wouldn't identify ourselves as a, as a rich person, right? And, and you may not be Bill Gates, but we're making minimum wage in America. We are probably not even in the top 10% of the world, closer to the top 1% of wealthiest people on our planet. You and I can relate to Richie Rich more than most other people in the world today, and certainly over the course of human history. Now, that's not to, we, we don't tread lightly on the fact that some of us are really feeling financial woes, and there's relative natures of, of finances and all of that. But most of us are not wondering, when I get home today, is there going to be food for me for lunch? Am I going to have a roof over my head tonight? Unless you're camping for the fourth, and that's a different thing. But we don't see our need as easily for our God when it comes to possessions. It has been said that the bigger enemy of the gospel is not adversity going through hard times, but it's actually prosperity and seasons of plenty. Because we don't see the need for our Savior, for our God, as easily. Now, here's the main problem. We're making a false God out of money, right? Out of our possessions. Now, not literally bowing down and singing songs to it. Money's our rescuer. Money's our rescuer. That would be weird. But um, Richie Rich, here's what happened. He made his wealth his identity, his security, and his meaning. His identity, his security, and his meaning. And, and that comes from a God, right? That's what you look to for from a God. And instead of looking at from his God for those things, he was looking at his possessions as his, as his money. In fact, what's he called in this story? The rich young ruler. That's how he's known. And obviously, he thought it gave him security because he's going, if I don't have this, I can't make it. Jesus, I can't let go of this and follow you because I, that's savior language, right? I can't make it without this. And it became the meaning of his life. How do we know 
that it was his God, that he was unwilling to give it up? Well, what happens when Jesus asks him to? When the young man heard this, verse 22, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He chooses his God. He's the monkey with his hand in the jar, unwilling to let the possessions go to follow Jesus. And in essence, he has trapped himself. Now, this is important. I want you to hear me on this. Jesus isn't saying that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. That is not the point. He's also not saying in order to get to heaven, every person has to sell all of their belongings to follow him. Because there could be people who pride themselves on having very little, right? Look how much I give away, and I live in this cardboard box, and, and, and we can kind of make our God poverty, right? We're still finding our identity, our meaning in, in how little we have or how much we give away. We know it's not a prosperity gospel, but it's also not a poverty gospel. The problem was not the man's money. It was his heart. It's what he had made his money to be. So, of course, we do our own heart check here, and we say, what's in my fist that's got my hand stuck in the jar? And I think for all of us, in one way or another, we make money an idol. It's certainly something we grap- grapple with, but there, there are other things. We can, we can do this with anything, with good things, right? Like, you know, I, I, I can do that with being a good preacher, God gave me a gift to be able to use for his kingdom, but once I start looking at that for my identity and my security and my meaning, I've distorted it, right? When I start saying, well, I'm Justin, I'm the preacher, that's who I am, and being a good preacher, and I start to look to my my security, my my power, my my safety from that, that if I'm not, if I don't perform right, if I don't preach well, and people won't like me, that they might leave the church, the church might fall under, all of a sudden, my rock becomes my ability to preach well or to be a good pastor and it becomes the meaning of my life maybe for you it's it's being a good parent being recognized as that competent i love my kids i love my family i'm going to show you on facebook with all my posts maybe it's being reliable responding quickly when people reach out to you maybe it's maybe it's your performance at work there's a lot of different things. that be, Anything can become a god, and we can have many different gods simultaneously. The idols, these idols are not bad things in of themselves, but here's what happens. We make good things ultimate things, and we exchange them for the true God. He said earlier, you can't serve both God and money. To serve God as God is an exclusive God. One of the best idol t- tests for us is how do you react when, when that thing that you're holding on to is threatened to be taken away? Because if that's your God, I cannot... Imagine if the God of the universe disappeared, right? We, the whole world would go to chaos, right? We can't lose God. And that becomes the reality of the God that you're holding on to as well. And so more importantly, the question here is what should we do? Or like the disciples ask, who then can be saved? Like, wh- where do we go from here, Jesus? Well, we let go of our own righteousness and riches. And number two, we receive Jesus's righteousness and riches. See, it's not just the letting go. The important thing is that we need to be able to receive. And you can only do that when you have an open hand that's empty. Three little words in this story that are very easy to miss and overlook. But I think they're the most important three. He says, sell all your possessions. And we kind of get hung up on that part of it. But he says, sell all your possessions. And then what does he say? You're going to have treasure in heaven. i got a better way for you, which he tells Peter at the end of the chapter. And come follow me. That's the call. He says, don't follow after your possessions. Let them go and come and follow me. 
Now, now let's link these two important statements together. Because earlier he said, there is only one who is good. There's only one who is good. But then he doesn't say, then go and follow God. What does he say? Come and follow me. What's he think of himself? He says, no one is good except God alone. So you put this logic together. Jesus says there is only one who is good, and that's God. Therefore, you cannot rely on your own goodness, your own righteousness, your own morality, or your own possessions to earn your way, buy your way into the kingdom. Like anyone else, you must follow me. Why? Because only I am good, and only I am God. Our goodness cannot come from ourselves. It can only come from Jesus. There was another man who discovered this. His name was Paul. And man, he was another guy like the rich young ruler. His life looked pretty, pretty good. Philippians chapter 3. Oh, we're going to skip that verse. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is Paul talking. Look at my resume, God. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee. I come from good stock. I'm from God's chosen people. As to zeal, verse 6, a persecutor of the church, which was good at that point for him. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. My life looks pretty good on paper. But on the road to Damascus, he encounters the person of Jesus. And unlike our rich young ruler who was unwilling to let everything else go, Paul says that when he finds the real treasure of his life, he says none of that's worth anything compared to what I've found in Jesus. He says, but whatever gain I had, all those things, I count them as loss for the sake of Christ. I will gladly give those up because I've found a treasure that's more worth more worthy than any of those things. Verse 8, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. I know my goodness cannot come from me. It doesn't come from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ to receive from him what I could never conjure up on my own. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. See, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, gives us right standing with God. He lived the life that we could not live. The only one who was good. And when he becomes our greatest treasure, not our temporary riches that cannot save us, we can worship God rightly. See, Richie Rich led off with the wrong question. He asked, what must I do? What must I do? He should have asked, who are you? Are you the Savior? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that's come to finally rescue us? See, the gospel is not do good and live. The gospel is you're not good, but you're forgiven. And not just forgiven, but we're actually given Jesus' righteousness. The only one who was ever good. He's the one that can change our hearts. With God, all things are possible. So we must come and follow him. And the rich young ruler here, this story comes right after another time with these little children. Remember the disciples, once again, they they don't learn the lesson quickly. They want to push those little kids away. But Jesus responds to them. And he says, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of heaven belongs to people who are like these children. See, we often come with this clenched fist over our false God, trapped by our own designs. And he says, when you're holding on to that, you can't accept me. 
but rather come like a small child with open hands, with empty hands, and find in me, the only one who is good, your identity, your security, your meaning. This is the only place we find satisfaction, the only place we can find the true purpose of who we were originally created to be in the image of God. And it's only in Christ that we can find true security. Money can't save us. Performance can't save us. Only Jesus. So what is in your fist in the jar today? What are you looking to for identity, security, and meaning? And, and sometimes for me to think that through, I answer this question. How would I honestly, not just on paper, honestly answer these questions or finish these sentences? God loves me because... Or God saved me because. Or God approves of me because. How would you honestly in your heart answer that question today? Because if I look to some of my false gods, and I go, well, the reason God approves of me is because, man, I'm a, I'm a good preacher. I've been, I've been doing my best, right? My performance. God, God, God saved me because of what I was. There's only one right answer here. R.C. Sproul said it this way. I love this. Not all of us will be asked to sell everything that we have. We talked about that. But all of us are commanded to set aside any idol that may be present in our life. We must all give up relying on our own efforts to earn salvation and instead embrace the grace that alone can redeem us from the curse of sin and death. Do you depend absolutely on the Lord for redemption? There's something else that you're holding on to. Think of the ways you have not loved God with your whole heart and confess your need of him alone to save you. We've got to let it go. And we've got to come to him with empty hands, saying, God, I have nothing to offer you on my own. I cannot earn your love. I cannot earn your approval. I cannot earn a life with you in your kingdom. And so I freely receive by faith what I could never earn, the free gift of life in Jesus himself. I want to close this with, if you close your eyes with me. Here's what I want us to do, a little visual. I want you to take one of your fists, take one of your hands and put it into a fist. I want you to visualize that fist in the jar. And what is it that your fingers are wrapped around right now? Maybe it's your performance at home, at work, ministry. Maybe it is possessions, some form of comfort, control. Maybe it's an addiction, a hang-up, a self-medication. We bought into the lie that I need this thing, that I can't be happy without it, that I can't be in control without it, that I don't have security without it, I don't have my, I, this is who I am, this is, this is the meaning of my life. What he's inviting us to do is to let that thing go. I just want you to slowly release your fist visualize letting that thing go. That's a scary thing, right? It's a scary thing to let it go. We're invited to trust that Jesus is so much better that whatever it was that was in your fist, it's rubbish compared to Jesus. In fact, we can only enjoy those good things when Jesus is in his right place in our hearts. And then we turn that palm, face that palm up toward the ceiling. We want to receive from Jesus what we could never find in our own. I want to pray these words from this beautiful old hymn called Rock of Ages. It says, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Nothing in my hand I bring 
simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Father, we, we've chased these gods, these false gods. We've, we've run after things that we've learned time and time again cannot save us, cannot satisfy us, cannot give us security. And yet, Lord, I know my heart that is prone to wander. And in my pride, look for those things outside of Jesus. I pray that you would give us the grace today to let those things go. We do not want to be trapped like the rich young ruler, unable to follow Jesus, but give us the grace to trust what you've said about your son, that only he can satisfy us, that only he can save us, that only he can give our life true meaning and purpose. And thank you, Father, that it's not in this set of rules for us to follow, but in this person, that a relationship with Jesus, God himself, that we would find this full satisfaction as we behold him, as we become like him, that we would treasure Jesus above all else. That would be reflected in our hearts. Lord, it's scary to let those other things go. But for the grace to trust you more, and to find Jesus, following Jesus, is infinitely better than anything else this world could offer us. We pray these things in your beautiful, saving hand-filling name. Amen.